Hello, everyone. Welcome back, campers. So, we told y'all we were doing a case about Israel Keys this week. Yes. That's actually next week. Yes, that was a whoopsie. <laughs> sorry. And with good reason, because Israel Keys is such a doozy of a case mm. that we needed an extra week to really get the script up to the standards we want it to be before we present you guys the story. So we are gonna be giving you a blind read case today. And we really enjoy doing these mm -hmm. every once in a while because it gives us kind of a brain break from rereading, at least for me, like rereading right. a script that I've read a hundred times and I don't know. It's just kind of fun it, to change things up a little. It's fun for me because it's like watching an episode of like a crime show and like trying mm. to figure out the twists and turns. And yes. Yes. And we get to shout out an article that we enjoyed mm -hmm. and we get to react in real time as you guys are. So today we are going to be bringing you a GQ article written in 2012 by Vanessa Veselka. And we know nothing about this case or the story we're going to be reading other than the title, which is The Truck Stop Killer, and the description of the article, which we will go ahead and give to you guys. The description reads, he was methodical, he rode the highways, and he preyed on teenage girls. Girls who'd run away girls no one would miss. In the summer of 1985, the author was such a girl. One night on I-95, she hitched a ride from a stranger and endured the most terrifying moments of her life. Now, years later, she returns to the scenes of her fugitive youth, looking for clues to that terror and the girls who lost their lives to it. Lights out, campers. Oh man, the mountains call my number one. I'm just a life-size lottery ticket in the hand of the one. In the summer of 1985, somewhere near Martinsburg, Pennsylvania, the body of a young woman was pulled from a truck stop dumpster. I had just hitched a ride and was sitting in a nearby truck, waiting for the driver to pay for gas so we could leave. When they found her, they were shouting. A man from the restaurant ran out and started yelling for everyone to stay away as a small crowd gathered around the dumpster in the rain. Word filtered back that the dead girl was a teenage hitchhiker. I remember thinking it could be me, since I was also a teenage hitchhiker. Ah! Ooh. Watching the driver of my truck walk back across the wet asphalt, a second thought arose. It could be him. He could be the killer. The driver reached the cab, swung up behind the wheel, and said we should get going. He said he didn't want to get caught up in anything time-consuming. Sewing his paperwork, he released the brake. Neither of us said anything about the dead girl. As we pulled away, I looked once more in the side mirror. They were stringing crime tape around the dumpster just as another state trooper rolled into the lot. The ride turned out to be fine. We drove up to Ohio drinking Diet Coke and listening to Bruce Springsteen. The trucker bought me lunch and didn't even try to have sex with me, which made him a prince in my world. Wow. Uh, oh, God. Honey. Oh, baby girl. Oh, God. Several days later, though, heading 
south on I-95 through the Carolinas, I got picked up by another trucker who was not fine. I don't remember much about him except that he was taller and leaner than most truckers and didn't wear jeans or t-shirts. He wore a cotton button-down with the sleeves rolled up over his biceps and had the cleanest cab I ever saw. He must have seemed okay or I wouldn't have gotten in the truck with him. Once out on the road, though, he changed. He stopped responding to my questions. His bearings shifted. He grew taller in his seat and his face muscles relaxed into something both arrogant and blank. Then he started talking about the dead girl in the dumpster, oh my gosh, Uh-oh. and asked me if I'd ever heard of the Laughing Death Society. Quote, we laugh at death, he told me. Hell to the no. <laughs> no, no, no. 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 Oh. Uh, and that's when I would have opened the door. And, and done a Michael <laughs> <barrel> Scott, <laughs> Steve Carell at the beginning of Crazy Stupid Love, where he's like, I swear to God, open. If you don't stop, I'm going to roll out onto the road. I'm going to do it. I I'm going to do it. I'm gonna, and then he just opens the car door. <laughs> I did it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The hair is already prickling on the back of my neck. The side eye that I would have like that is the what is it is it kermit no it's the little bear thing or whatever meme where it's like it's the oh my god i know exactly what you're talking about yes what was that again Uh, we laugh at death uh, can you elaborate on that please a few minutes later he pulled the truck onto the shoulder of the road by some woods took out a hunting knife and told me to get into the back of the cab I began talking, saying the same things over and over. I said I knew he didn't want to do it. I said it was his choice. I said he could do it in a few minutes. I said it was his choice. I said I wouldn't go to the cops if nothing happened to me, but it was his choice. Until he looked at me and I went still. There was going to be no more talking. I knew in my body that it was over. Then he said one word, run. Without looking back, I ran into the woods and hid. I stayed there until I saw the truck pull onto the interstate. It was getting dark. I was still in shock, so I walked back out to the same road and started hitching south. I never went to the police and didn't tell anyone for years. This spring, a friend sent a news story link about a serial killer with the subject line, Is this your guy? The serial killer's name was Robert Ben Rhodes. Rhodes was a long-haul trucker in jail since 1990, who had recently been convicted of a couple of new cold cases. I didn't recognize him from the initial photos, but as I found pictures of him as a younger man, His face came to seem more familiar. The glasses were the same, the curve of the cheekbone, and something about the expression, particularly the set of the mouth. It had the same neutral arrogance. Rhodes looked like the guy who picked me up. But then, Rhodes looks like a lot of guys. He would only have been 39 at the time, and I remember the trucker as an older man with light brown or graying hair. To a teenager, though, someone pushing 40 is pretty old, and hair often looks darker in photos. 
The light in my memory is strange, too. It was a cloudy day just before a summer storm, and everything in the truck is cast in gray. After receiving a friend's email, I left messages with the FBI, but was relieved when they were not returned. The memory was 27 years old, and nothing in it was actionable. The photos stayed in my head, though, and with them came questions. What if the man who pulled the knife on me really did murder the hitchhiker? Why did he let me go? Who was the girl in the dumpster? Why didn't I go to anyone? I needed to understand what my responsibility was and to find my own answers, if nobody else's, so I began to look. I have no fascination with serial killers, so I didn't realize that Rhodes was famous. There were articles, TV episodes, and books on him. Driven to kill, roadside prey, killer on the road. And from these sources, I learned that every grim and secret fear I have about the human race is manifest in Robert Ben Rhodes. Rhodes was a sexual sadist. He kidnapped women, tortured and raped them for weeks before killing them. What is known about him in the 1980s is murky. He was involved in the BDSM and swinger scene in his hometown of Houston. He was married. How are they always married? I... They're always married. They're always married or they have like a long-term like live-in girlfriend or partner. Wild. Like I'm genuinely trying to think. I know there are examples of those who were not, but everyone that pops into my mind and if they weren't married, then they were very much involved in the community like john wayne gacy Mm -hmm. actually john wayne gacy was married at one Mm -hmm. point bitch they were all married look there's plenty of fish in the sea out there for you guys like if these homies can get Uh, someone that's wild i guess jeffrey dahmer wasn't but he but he also type of person that just it's crazy that these psychos are so good at attracting people yeah yeah that's so creepy oh god when he was caught he said that he had been doing this for 15 years which would put the onset of his murders back into the 1970s his trucking logs place him in the area of 50 unsolved (gasps) murders in the three years prior to his arrest alone what while not all 50 cases have been tied to roads yet and Rhodes himself has admitted to only three murders, the FBI has a strong reason to believe that at his peak, he was killing one to three women a month. That is so horrifying, and I do not doubt it. Rhodes was first arrested when an Arizona state trooper found a screaming woman named Lisa Pennell chained in the back of his cab. He was charged with kidnapping and assault. What put him away for life, though, was the rape and murder of Regina Walters, a 14-year-old girl from Pasadena, Texas. Rhodes picked her up along with her boyfriend, Ricky Jones, in February of 1990. Jones was promptly killed, and his remains were discovered later in Mississippi. Rhodes kept Regina for at least two weeks. He had shaved her head and pubic hair, pierced her with fishing hooks, dressed her up in a black dress and heels, and photographed her in moments of terror. 
then killed her with a garrote made of baling wire, leaving her 100-pound body to decompose in a barn in Illinois off Interstate 70. Caitlin, I remember seeing that picture. Like the picture is like right in front of my eyes. Yes. Like I see it clear as day. Yes, of a very young, slender, like wide-eyed looking woman and she's wearing a long black dress and she's standing next to a picnic table or something it looks she's like in a deconstructed barn almost yeah and it is haunting and I... what pisses me off are the comments because like almost every time i've seen this picture comments mm-hmm. are like why didn't she run look at all that open space oh my like God. why didn't the most ignorant thing you can say <sighs> wow like he didn't have full control of the situation a hundred percent of the time that's completely ridiculous to say that's oh yes as soon as that description started i knew exactly Mm -hmm. what it was referring to and i don't remember like his name's not ringing a bell to me right now but but i do remember that yes that picture behind the tragic elements of regina's story like some kind of pentimento i saw my own like me she left home with her older boyfriend also like me regina became dependent upon the grace of truck drivers in her weeks with roads many drivers saw her but somehow no alarm was raised she passed through that world as if she were invisible in 1985 my biggest problem was sleep There was no safe way for me to get it. I left home early in January, hitchhiking from New York City with my 21-year-old boyfriend. We had $60 and a Smith Wesson five-shot with one bullet in it, which we accidentally fired off in (laughs) in a field in Maryland during a discussion about whether the safety was on. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And that is always how somebody's ear gets blown off and your life flashes before your eyes. I swear. Please. God. (laughs) I had a guitar and a knapsack full of souvenirs of my girlhood. Notes from friends, earrings, and song lyrics. I was 15. People don't leave home because things are going well. They leave because they feel they have to. And right or wrong, that's how I felt. I lived with my mom in New York, and the fights between us were growing in intensity and emotional violence. I don't think either of us knew what to do about it. There was talk of me going to live with my dad in Virginia, where I had traditionally spent my summers. By then, though, I had been kicked out of two schools for absences and was cutting myself regularly. My emotions were a planet around which I spun like a moon. As I saw it, it didn't matter if I left. Because in so many ways, I was already gone. On my way out, I destroyed every single picture of me over the age of 12 so that there would be nothing to give the police. That first night, my boyfriend and I stayed in an abandoned barn in Maryland. It was off the side of the freeway and probably very much like the one Regina Walters was found in. The barn had a loft with wind coming through broken slats and was surrounded by the same kind of brown grassy field and frozen mud. Like Regina, I also had a little journal and probably wrote something in it that night because it was far too cold to sleep. 
We were back on the road before dawn, walking down a highway covered in black ice, shivering in our hoodies. A trucker picked us up at daybreak, and I rode in a semi for the first time. Being up high, warm, and looking out over the traffic was a great improvement. The trucker bought us chicken fried steak, chatted amiably, and let us nap in the cab while he drove. While we were asleep, he pulled into a small truck stop, and I woke up to his hand down my shirt. There it is. God. There it is. There it is. I kept my eyes closed, stayed still, then rolled away from him, pretending I was still asleep. A few minutes later, I got up like nothing had happened. The trucker went to pay for gas, and my boyfriend and I went to use the bathroom. When we came back, the truck was gone, and every reminder of home with it. My guitar, my knapsack, everything except the Smith Wesson, which we sold later in New Orleans. I hate how, like, it was like a split-second thought where I was like, oh, that's nice, he paid for them. Yeah. And immediately I was like, what's the catch? <sighs> exactly. And like, then you're there it is. Um, like, not even a full second of thinking. Yeah. I just went... There it is. Ah. Then he goes zero mm. to full fucking mm. disgusting. Ugh. That first ride was a preview of how it would often go for me with truckers, dodging sex and getting stranded. But I had learned one crucial lesson. When a truck slows down, you get up. Getting sleep was pretty easy with a boyfriend because one of us could always stay awake. Six weeks later, though, we parted ways. Somewhere in Arizona, we had a fight in a gas station off I-10, and we each climbed into separate trucks, and that was it. I was on my own. Without fake ID, I couldn't stay in a shelter. Sleeping by myself on the street made me a target, and having sex with some creepy old guy for a spot on a mattress also held little appeal. So I went back to hitchhiking in circles and discovered a state of half-conscious wherein I could be asleep and not asleep at the same time. I could rest, but not dream. I could tell you the last three songs played on the radio if you asked, but only if you asked. If you didn't, I had no memory of them at all. I stuck to trucks because they were safer than cars. When you get in a truck, at a truck stop, everyone notices. They chatter about it on CB, and you are driving off in what amounts to a huge billboard advertising the name of the company. Mm -hmm. I needed visibility to stay alive. But it was also a dangerous form of brinkmanship, because if a trucker was going to cross the line, the higher stakes meant he was going to do it for real. There was a gap before that line, and most truckers wouldn't take it that far. I lived in that gap. Wow. That's such a very excellently put description. Mm -hmm. And this is why I love doing these blind reads, because... This is a perspective that we would not be able to infuse into a script about this case mm -hmm. because we would just be regurgitating information. We have not had to live something like you're that truly she has... being submersed yes. into a first account mm -hmm. of like not just the murder murderer himself. Like this isn't about necessarily Rhodes himself yeah. like a case about him yeah but like just the whole dynamic of it all mm -hmm. and the fact that she 
I don't know if at the time she was that self-aware that she was existing in that gap, but so many women exist in that gap on a daily basis, day in and day out, 24-7. And that just absolutely breaks my heart for her that that's how she was existing and moving through the world, that she was never able to just close her eyes and sleep because she had to also be vigilant. She and was always on fight. All, yes. Like fight mode. Always in stay alive oh mode. Oh gosh. And man, that is... As a 15-year-old uh, girl. Yes. Ugh. Truck stops in the 1980s were closed worlds where what went on passed unnoticed on the outside. The stores were dimly lit and filled with smoke, radically different from the family travel plazas of today. Magazine porn often dominated the aisles, glossies like Hustler and Barely Legal, but also newsprint rags with cheap color covers. Bottles of isobutyl nitrite and rot-gut aphrodisiacs like Locker Room and Spanish Fly crowded the counters by the register, along with the iconic bumper sticker, ass, gas, or grass, no one rides for free. Back then, though, my thoughts weren't on misogyny. They were on logistics. I needed to find rides and usually couldn't get into the restaurants. The general rule was that you were a prostitute until proven otherwise, and then you were still a prostitute. Waitresses were the first to kick you out. Um, girls... Ladies, what are we doing to each other? Oh my gosh. That is not okay. Anyway, that forced me into asking for rides in the hallway by the showers. Over time, I learned safer ways of getting rides by having truckers navigate the CB radio for me. Women couldn't really get on the, quote, zoo channel, as they called it then, because the sound of their voice would trigger 20 minutes of crass chatter. There was only one word for woman on the CB. Oh my god. I'm sorry, that was my own interjection. <laughs> there was only one word for woman on the CB, and that word was beaver. Even the guys who were trying to help had used it. They had to make up stories for me. I got a beaver needs a ride to Flagstaff for her grandma's funeral. Don't want no trouble. Come on back. There was always a sick mom or dead grandparent involved, and I was almost always abandoned by my jerk of a boyfriend who'd made off with all my money and my car. I um, uh. feel unwell. Mm. This is a hard way of life. Like... <sighs> People suck. Ugh. Yeah. Through these stories, I jumped from truck to truck. Like a lemur in a canopy of trees, I barely saw the ground. Even so, it still wasn't safe to sleep. Adhering to my rule that the only safe truck was a moving truck meant I woke when a truck took an exit. I woke when it slowed for traffic. When it turned, when it downshifted, when it drifted toward the shoulder, I woke. Wearing down from lack of sleep and trying to get a handle on my risk level, I began to work off a 1 to 5 scale of sexually aggressive behavior. 1. You, the driver, kept your urges to yourself. 
Two, you asked me to have sex and offered to pay. Three, you told me I owed you sex for the ride and chicken fried steak and threatened to drop me off somewhere dangerous. Four, you dropped me off somewhere dangerous. Five, I had to jump when you slowed down because you were going to rape me. Oh my god. Most truckers occupied the middle of the scale, but the trucker who resembled Rhodes didn't have a place on it. Anybody who pulls a knife on you in an enclosed space like a truck is terrifying. But beyond that, it was the man's demeanor that was so chilling. He wasn't nervous, angry, or excited. He was grave and methodical as if preparing to dress a deer. From reading about Rhodes, I knew that he preferred hitchhikers to prostitutes and specifically targeted runaways. I also knew the first thing he did was to get them into the back of his sleeper cab, which had anchor points for shackles. But I hadn't seen any shackles. I only saw the man with the knife. It has to be him, a friend said. How many of those guys could there be? (laughs) Oh, honey. God. According to the FBI, quite a few. In 2009, the feds went public with a program called the Highway Serial Killings Initiative in response to a rising number of dead bodies found along the interstates. Some of these were women left in dumpsters, narrowing the field to those last seen around truck stops and rest areas. The Bureau counted over 500 bodies, almost all women. Of the 200 people on a suspect list, almost all of them were long-haul truckers. But nobody had to tell me that people like Rhodes killed people like me and got away with it. Going through the truck stops, I'd heard about women getting their throats slit or strangled. I'd heard of at least one who got hung on a meat hook in the back of a refrigerated trailer because a trucker thought she'd given him VD. At night, I listened to the voices of prostitutes on the CB, barely intelligible between streams of name-calling. Hello, honey, it's me, Sugar Bear, and Party Row. Anyone want a party? What's VD? I'm going to look that up right now. Oh, I think it stands for venereal disease. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's what it is. Lot lizards is what truckers call prostitutes who work truck stops. And since many drivers don't distinguish between hitchhikers and prostitutes, I was a lot lizard too. (laughs) What in the fuck? The two brain cells come up with like the stupidest names. If we went missing, months could pass before a report was filed, and by then there was little to connect the missing person in one state with the decomposed remains in another. When the Illinois state trooper who was trying to identify the body of Regina Walters, the girl Rhodes left in that barn, put her forensic description out on the national teletype, he was totally unprepared for the response. He requested information on missing Caucasian females aged 13 to 15 years old who had disappeared six to nine months earlier. He got over 900 matches. Mm. If there was any way to connect my story to Rhodes, it would be through the body of the girl in the dumpster. 
Records on her would provide a date and a place that could then be checked against Rhodes' trucking logs. To at least one of my questions, was Rhodes my guy? I'd have a clear answer, a simple yes or no. I began by Googling things like dead girl truck stop Martinsburg. Nothing came up, but that wasn't too surprising. Her murder happened 27 years ago and was essentially pre-internet. I pulled up a map of Martinsburg, Pennsylvania, and that's where things started to get hazy. Martinsburg was nothing but a pinprick, just a dot on a minor route feeding into a mid-sized highway on the outskirts of Altoona, Pennsylvania. Not the sort of place you'd expect to find a busy truck stop. Had I confused the state? I did a search on towns named Martinsburg. There were seven within range. Indiana, Iowa, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Missouri, West Virginia, and New York. All less than a day's drive apart. A week before the girl was found in the dumpster, though, I'd gone to see my dad in Virginia. At the time, he was struggling himself, living with several other guys in a house where you flush the toilet with a bucket of water, and working what little construction there was in the county. I quickly realized I would have been nothing but a burden. The morning I left, I asked him to take me to the closest truck stop so I could get a ride going toward California. It was a made-up destination, a Grapes of Wrath narrative of brighter futures. I was sure he would remember where he took me back then, so last spring I called him. I didn't tell him about my recent inquiries at first. I just asked where he'd drop me off. Without any hesitation, he said, Martinsburg, West Virginia. Were there any murders that summer? I asked him. There was that hitchhiker. You called and left a message a day or so after I dropped you off, saying I was going to read about a dead 17-year-old hitchhiker they found in a truck stop and that it wasn't you. My whole body relaxed. My memory may have been bent by sleep deprivation, but I was not crazy. There was a Martinsburg truck stop somewhere in my story, and there was a dead 17-year-old hitchhiker. She had existed enough for me to call my dad all those years ago and warn him about what he would read. And if it happened, she could be found. It was just a matter of looking harder. The original Rhodes investigation had woven a complex web, entangling local and federal agencies in five different states. Eventually, the focus shifted to the Houston FBI because at some point every thread ran through Texas. Rhodes, now I just see Texas Rhodes cells. <laughs> mm, those rolls, mm. yes. Rhodes was from Texas. His wife, Deborah Davis, was from Texas. Regina Walters and Ricky Jones were from Texas. He picked up two of his other victims in Texas. I flew to Austin to meet with two retired FBI men, Special Agents Mark Young and Robert F. Lee, who'd both worked on the case. Young was a profiler for the Bureau as well as a field agent. Over lunch at a sushi place, he taught me the difference between a mode of operation and a signature. Modes of operation change. They're more like habits, he said, and can adapt to circumstances or mood. Rhodes, for instance, used guns and ligature strangulation, and probably knives, too. 
A signature, however, does not change. Sexual sadists in particular work off erotic maps established early on. They get more nuanced and elaborate, but the basic topography remains the same. One of Rhodes' signatures was shaving the head and pubic hair of his female victims. Piercings around the breasts, bruising, and other signs of torture were also frequently found. That's very interesting. I can't say that I've come across that yet in the things we've talked about, the the signature mm-hmm. versus the mode of operation. Yeah, I've because, never distinguished the two. Like, in my yeah. head, I've never thought of the two being separated. Yeah. So modes of operation are more like habits and can adapt to circumstances or mood. So I wonder if that would be like, let's see. Hmm. So maybe they're saying the mode of operation, guns, ligature, strangulation, and probably knives, so that he kind of interchanges mm-hmm. what he uses to have be his object of control. Or like the moods, he doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. do it when he's erratic. He could do it when he's like happy or sad mm-hmm. or angry, yes. like okay. not just anger mm-hmm. controls him in those moments. Yeah. Like that's kind of what it's... Yeah. If that makes sense. And then the, it does. And then the signature not changing, meaning like maybe no matter how he did so, mm-hmm. he always ends up shaving the head. Like, But getting to the point, uh, the tool, for example, maybe the tool of shaving the head could mm. vary. The razor, not like sorry to be gross, but like clippers, you know, yeah. like that could be the mode of operation but the signature is that it has happened Hmm. that's man that's so bizarre interesting because like i always just think about like these serial killers having one set way it's almost like ocd Mm -hmm. yes where everything's the same Mm -hmm. yeah like israel keys who i i hate that i'm bringing him up so much but we will he's be talking my, about him. He's on week. the brain a lot because we're talking about him, but he definitely had modes of operation that were similar but shifted depending on the circumstance. Very true. But he also had signatures in the way that he would. You know, I think he's things. actually a really yeah. good one to mm-hmm. have this line of thinking for. Mm-hmm. Yes. Maybe we can really talk about that with his particular case Mm -hmm. mode of operation versus signature Mm. yeah absolutely it's crazy the things that they can they pick up on Mm -hmm. and it tells so much about the person yeah i hate that i'm so fascinated by it but also I'm not going to stop being fascinated by it. And clearly there are people way, way smarter than us that have spent far more time understanding and learning these things because this is how you establish those patterns of behavior Mm -hmm. to catch someone. And so you have to understand. Meanwhile, I'm just like, look at the eyes. Look at the (laughs) eyes. There ain't nothing there. (laughs) There's something missing. Like my great uncle George used to say about hunting dogs, you can see the fire in their eyes. And that's how you know they're going to be a good hunting dog. (laughs) (laughs) 
or to live by Uncle George. (laughs) Gotta have the fire in their eyes. But these people, I would say there's nothing there. There's nothing. There's nothing. And I would not want to come across a dog either with nothing in its eyes. Absolutely not. Unless it's nothing because they're just pure dumb love. (laughs) Just pure golden retriever energy. Not a thought. (laughs) (laughs) Not a watching you while you sleep. Nothing there energy. Ah! (laughs) Okay, let's get back to the story. (laughs) Young, a six foot four Texan and third generation lawman opened his laptop and pulled up a picture of a young woman named Shauna Holtz. Only days before Regina Walters was taken, Rhodes had been detained by the police in Houston for the possible sexual assault and kidnapping of Holtz. She'd been picked up at a truck stop, shackled into the back of a cab, tortured and raped for weeks. She escaped when Rhodes pulled into a Houston brewery. I'd always read that she got away because Rhodes forgot to chain her in. But I found out from Young that she'd not been shackled when she escaped. Rhodes had told her to, oh my gosh, quote, sit there and be a good girl. I'd start barking at him. And she was like, "Um, okay, bye, bitch. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Watch me. Mm -hmm. But Holtz, 18 years old, had been on the street since she was 12. By her own account, she had been raped at least 20 times and had already had a baby. She knew how to survive. Whatever the man thought he had broken in her had already been broken and healed back stronger. She didn't do what he expected. She ran. She brought the police right back to Rhodes' truck and then balked at pressing charges. So they had to let him go. The story was that she was too scared, but I wondered if there was more. I looked at the pictures on Young's computer. Shauna was a pretty girl with freckles and blank blue eyes. I don't know if I'd want to be told I have blank. Blank blue eyes? Maybe it means blank as in they were just pure blue. Like there's nothing okay. else there. That's what I'm What? That's what I'm going to take. We'll take the compliment. Yeah, because we just talked about blank eyes yeah. for a while and not in a good way. Her- Shauna, her, your eyes were not blank. <laughs> her thick red blonde hair had been cropped close to her head with a knife or scissors and was now growing back with all her freckles she looked very irish around her neck was a dog chain with a padlock attached to the ring that had been used to restrain her neck but in the pictures with her inch long hair and dog collar she looked like a gutter punk like any girl you might see in a university district Mm gutter punk band name <laughs> calling it I've never heard that i've never either very 80s 90s yes gutter punk i like that a gutter punk better than beaver i mean seriously young then showed me some photos of Rhodes in the 1980s that had come from his wife and one he relaxed on the grass in a park The natural light brought his hair closer to the color I remembered, and again, the side view heightened the key similarities, his cheekbone shape, glasses, the expression. But as I had learned from the echo chamber of Martinsburg's, memory is strange territory. By now, papers and photographs were spread out all over the table, and Young was waiting for me to tell my story. 
Although I'd told it more in the preceding week than in the past two decades, I still wasn't used to doing it, and the nausea still came. One thing I always did, I told Young, was rifle through a trucker's cassette case as soon as we were out on the highway. This gave me a screen behind which to observe drivers when they thought I was distracted. It allowed me to pretend not to hear scary red flag comments so I could act dumb and get away later. And this is what I was doing that day, going through a tape case, chatting like an idiot and watching the driver, which is why I saw him change. I told Young about the Laughing Death Society. He'd never heard the phrase. I asked about the knife. Every trucker I ever met had a gun, so the knife seemed significant. He said a gun was about control, but a knife is personal. I'd seen the page from Regina's little notebook on which Rhodes had drawn a picture of a gun and a huge dagger dripping blood next to the words, Ricky is a dead man. So, was the trucker I met a true psychopath, I asked? What I find interesting is that he told you about the body of the girl and talked about the Laughing Death Society while he was still driving. You were not under his control. This tells me that he liked manipulating through terror, that it turned him on just like Rhodes. Mm. But a serial killer wouldn't have let me go, right? I asked. Maybe he didn't think you'd run. Hmm. Oh my god. Oh god. Also, they do let people go sometimes. We learned that from Ed Kemper. We've learned it from Ted Bundy. There's a very infamous moment in the Ted Bundy whole story Mm -hmm. where he had been fixating on a woman for a while because he had that very specific type. I believe it was young, slender women that had brunette hair that was kind of like shoulder length. And there was a woman he had been seeing on a particular, I think it was waiting for a bus outside of her college or something. And he had seen her multiple times and had kind of began fantasizing about her as a victim. Mm -hmm. And again, don't quote me on this. I'm just remembering it from things that I've read. But I do know that he had gotten her in the car and had been planning to make her a victim. But when she removed her beanie because it was cold outside she had recently cut her hair very short and he said something along the lines of what'd you do that for and it was almost like he was frustrated and angry at her and then he just kind of like kicked her out of the car and that holy shit like and I may not have gotten every detail right, but I vividly remember that as being a, he had a specific type. She aligned with that type. Then she changed something about herself. And was he, no longer fitting that image. Yes. And I, so he had to let her go because she didn't fit his rules. But to me, like this, him letting her run, mm-hmm. like to me, it's like a game. Like yes. he had control of her still. Yes. It's like run. Mm-hmm. And but yeah. he obviously didn't haunt her or anything. Yeah. Maybe so I don't know. Maybe for whatever reason she was able to de escalate that feeling that Maybe she was yeah. aware more aware enough 
than she was she thought she was putting on yeah. and that threw him yeah guess we'll never know but that is fascinating she should have bought a lottery ticket that day seriously seriously even at the time i'd wondered if running was part of the game rhodes was a great lover of games his favorite book was games people play wherein each social encounter is treated as a transaction or game one game in the book is called courtroom another is called beat me daddy what Another frigid woman. No. Mm, I don't want to read that. Not like in this book. In that one, driven by penis envy, a woman's inner child taunts a man into seducing her so that she can be freed from guilt for her own sadistic fantasies. <gasps> Who wrote what? this? Did it? Did a serial killer write this what? book? This is very weird and gross. Ew. I will be going down a rabbit hole Ew. later today. Yeah. Games People Play was a Bible for Rhodes. He talked about it frequently and applied its ideas. In a letter to his wife on the subject of psychological games, he wrote, I always told you there were three things you could do. Ah. Play, pass, or run. What? <laughs> The phrase, play, pass, run, is used twice in the letter. Reading it, I found it hard not to hear the man telling me to run. Wow, that is utterly terrifying. Alrighty. So the more I learned about roads, the more I saw parallels between us. While I was hitchhiking, he was driving. And while I was getting more adept at survival, he was getting more adept at killing. On the table in front of Young was a snapshot of Regina Walters that I hadn't seen, taken not very long before she was abducted. In it, she's sitting in the back seat of a car. The sun is coming down on her long hair and she's laughing. She looks like any other skinny kid just out of middle school. She looks happy. The picture was given to Young by Regina's mom. Initially, agents had disagreed over whether the young girl on Rhodes' film was Regina. It was Agent Young who recognized the small gap in Regina's teeth and noticed that a few freckles were in the same place. Young pulled out one last picture and slid it across to me. The photo was of a beautiful young girl, possibly Native American, she was on the end of the roll with Regina, he said. She's shown sitting in Rhodes' truck wearing a gray hoodie. Her eyes are partly closed as if she's stoned or sleepy. Rhodes must have just picked her up because he hasn't cut her hair yet. It's glossy black and long. No one knows who she is. On the phone, Agent Robert F. Lee was civil and to the point, but not overtly warm. I arrived at his door, melting in the hundred-degree heat. He welcomed me into his spacious living room. Tall and square-jawed, Lee looked like he could probably still tackle a bank robber. <laughs> Behind him was a shoulder-high pink plastic castle. Granddaughter, he said. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. On the couch beside me was a large pillow with the FBI seal. That's for my old SWAT jacket, he grinned. They don't use that emblem now. Looks too much like a target. 
The question of what you'd do with your old SWAT jacket when you retire had never entered my mind. Clearly, the answer is make a throw pillow. That's hilarious. <laughs> like one of your high school team t-shirts, mm-hmm. just a SWAT jacket t-shirt. I mean, That's pretty epic. I got the sense Lee appreciated brevity, so I dispensed with small talk and went straight to my questions, but he stopped me. I just want you to know, he said, looking me squarely in the eye, that what Rhodes did to women, he did to women. You didn't do it. Everything I expected from Bob Lee changed in that moment. I had not told him or anyone else how I felt about failing to go to the cops. These were my private feelings. The idea that I might have been responsible for what happened to girls like Regina was devastating, and Lee's directness startled me. Mm -hmm. It was a raw moment. So I told him the truth, which I had not told others, that I didn't say anything because I didn't think anyone would believe me. Well, said Lee, sitting back after I finished, you're probably right. Look at Lisa Pennell. Mm. I love that he said that to her Mm -hmm. because immediately he's given her that indication that you are never going to get anything from me that is... Well, if you had just done this, you could have saved so many of these other women. No. He gave her that permission to just let go. Yes. It is literally no one's fault, but the piece of walking garbage that did this, that you as a victim are not then responsible to take care of other victims or to prevent other people from being victimized. You survive. That's that's it so i i think that's very beautiful that he said that to her and i hate that he even had to say that to her I but agree. yeah Pennell was the woman chained into Rhodes' truck when they arrested him in arizona when rescued she was wearing fuzzy lion slippers talking secret prisons and being on a mission to see the president just the kind of testimony that makes most detectives stop taking notes since they're looking at someone who cannot stand trial. Her statement was videotaped the night she was freed from Rhodes' truck. Lee still uses the tape when he trains police detectives in interrogation. He shows it and asks what they think is going on. Most say well, she's a prostitute and that it's a, quote, transaction gone bad. Between Pennell and Rhodes, it's Rhodes they believe. Of course, Lee says, Lisa was talking all sorts of crazy stuff, microchips in her brain, holes in the ozone layer. She was wearing those slippers, but she was telling the truth. I had a vision of Lisa Pennell as a truck stop collie roaming the back lots in her denim skirt and fuzzy slippers with an ozone hole for a halo. She would be easy to dismiss. Rhodes intentionally chose women who lacked credibility. Sometimes, as with Shauna Holtz, the girl who had escaped in the brewery, the sense of not being credible was internalized. Lee told me that the final lines of Holt's police statement read, quote, I don't see any good in filing charges. It's just going to be my word against his. If there was any evidence, I would file. I would file charges and sue him. 
I would think this chain around my neck is enough evidence. Uh, my yeah, God, that's oh. oh, sad. It took me a second to understand those last sentences. What evidence was she lacking? She was found running naked, screaming down a street in Houston with DNA all over her body, her head and pubic hair shaved, still with this chain around her neck. Mm. How could she lack evidence? But I thought about what she'd said. It would just be my word against his, Mm -hmm. which was clearly followed by the unvoiced thought, and who is going to believe me? I could easily imagine my own teenage voice whispering those same words. The more I learned about Rhodes, the more I saw parallels between us. It wasn't lost on me that while I was hitchhiking and he was driving, we both have struggled with some of the same challenges. Sleep deprivation and the hypnotic dullness of going through identical locations over and over. A world constructed of boredom and violence. And while I was getting more adept at survival, he was very likely getting more adept at killing. We both had our own systems, our own rituals, and our own beliefs about what people were really like and how they acted under pressure. I'd put off riding roads, mostly because I didn't want him to write me back. The time had come to do it anyway. Mark Young said Rhodes likes to feel like an expert and that I should ask him to, quote, educate me. Sorry, that was my own vomit sound in there. So while writing my letter, I used permissive language, saying I wanted him to, quote, to teach me what I did right and what I did wrong when I was traveling. Knowing the capacity of his sadism made this unbearable. Rhodes didn't live a double life as much as a shadowed one. There's a picture of him in leather and chains that floats around the internet. It's actually from a Halloween party in Houston where he went as a, quote, slave, led on a chain by his wife who was dressed as a dominatrix. Y'all, Like, you know, we're going through this GQ article. There is a picture that I will never recover from. This motherfucker is disgusting. No. If I saw this bitch walk into a Halloween party in this getup, the night would be done. Irish goodbye. (laughs) Irish goodbye. Oh. I think... This is not no shade. shaming or anything. No, 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 no. It's, it's clearly because we no. know who he is. Yes. Consenting adults go nuts, but it's knowing who he is and what he has done and the slap in the face that this is to the ethical BDSM community. This is, oh my God, no. Hell, Hell no. Uh... So if you want to jump scare... You will find this picture easily on Google. I do not recommend it, though. Deborah Davis and Rhodes met in the early 80s at a Houston bar called Chip Kickers. Rhodes was dressed that night as an airline pilot, and it was months before Davis found out he wasn't one. The remarkable thing is that when she did, she didn't dump him. 
But Rhodes was cunning and highly charismatic. When the FBI extradited him to Illinois, he was able to get a phone number off a waitress while shackled hand and foot and wearing an orange prison suit. This obviously doesn't recommend the waitress's judgment, but at least some of the credit has to go to Rhodes. Bitch is out here getting numbers in an orange jumpsuit. <laughs> what in the fuck? <laughs> oh my. Oh boy. I'm tr- I, I don't even have anything to say. Shooketh. <laughs> Shooketh. I finally got to Davis through Agent Young. He sent me a text just as I was leaving Texas saying that Debbie was ready to talk. I called as soon as I landed. Today, Davis lives in College Station, Texas, and her kids, the product of a previous marriage, are grown. She occasionally speaks on domestic violence at conferences and in classrooms at AM. She tried to put the years with Rhodes behind her, but still gets letters from him sporadically. Sometimes they're threatening, sometimes cajoling, but always manipulative. Ew. Ew, ew. According to her, in the summer of 1985, Rhodes was driving for a trucking company based in Georgia that has an office right off I-95. I ran my story past her. When I got to the part about the sudden switch in his behavior, she got excited. That's him. That's exactly like him, she said. She also said Rhodes often left his gun at home in the beginning and could have used a knife. There were other points where she saw similarities and would say, that sounds like Bob, but these were less empathetic, and it was hard to tell what she really thought. Like Young and Lee, she had never heard of the Laughing Death Society, and since it had featured so strongly in my experience, I thought it salient. Do you think that facts starts to rule him out? Oh no, not at all, she said. Bob was fascinated by secret societies. Hmm. Could you imagine? No. I I genuinely can't. It's an entirely different type of victimization. Like how violating that would be to find out the person that you're... That your entire life... I shouldn't say that your entire life is a lie, and I want to be very careful not to speak about things with authority that I haven't lived, but true. all I, we can say is that the level of respect that we have for somebody that survives that type of trauma where you have to be able to somehow like separate the life that you had with them from what they were doing on the side even though they are the same person and the even though it is not true if I were in that position I would carry immense guilt that I was somehow complicit or an unwitting accomplice in what they were doing even though you absolutely are not but that would just be your trauma brain trying to like make sense of it all and just in this situation alone I would not mentally be no stable. And then to go through that, him go to prison, okay, bye, you're trying to move on, and then that motherfucker is still sending you letters. Lose my number. Yeah. Lose my address. Get fucked. Just 
God. And that how is he allowed to send her letters? I don't understand. Because I thought they closely monitored all of that. There should be some addresses that are off. He shouldn't be mailing anybody anything. He shouldn't have that privilege. (laughs) He should be writing letters to Jesus asking for forgiveness and that be it. God. But yeah, I... God. Hats off to that lady. I just hit my computer. (laughs) That's how I feel about that. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Ugh. Davis mentioned the case of Colleen Stan, a 21-year-old hitchhiker who had been kidnapped in 1977 by a couple who tortured her and kept her as a sex slave for seven years while she slept in a box under their bed. Eventually, she was left unbound. But they kept her from running away by convincing her that a secret society called The Company would find her and bring her back. Bob was obsessed with how they used an imaginary secret society to keep her from running away, Davis said. On a side note, we will definitely cover that case one day because that is a harrowing and incredible survival story on Colleen Stan's part, that one but they're truly embedded in my brain. It is, and there is one point where she was so underneath their control that they actually went and visited her parents with her, and spun a bullshit story about how the husband and her were happily together and building a life and that, oh, they were just busy with their life. And, you know, that's kind of why she hadn't reached out, but everything was great. And she loved them. And she was fully being kept in a fucking box under their bed. And then she was in her own parents' house. So under the control of her abuser that she could not do anything about it and that is that is beyond like i that level of psychological manipulation and control that people can have over other people is mind blowing to me horrible horrible oh. but she did survive and she got away but holy shit yeah that's that's a crazy story for another time And it made sense. As a true sexual sadist, Rhodes would have been interested in a level of submission requiring no chains. He'd told Shauna Holtz to, quote, sit there and be a good girl. Regina Walters had been seen in Chicago standing freely outside his truck in a public place. Do you remember what he was wearing? Davis asked quietly. She was the only person who asked me this, and of course I did. Or rather, I remember what he was not wearing. He was not wearing jeans. He was not wearing a t-shirt. He was not wearing flannel. His clothes were gray or blue, but that might have been the light. Deborah told me that Bob always wore matching dickies, usually dark blue. Quote, he liked people to think he was in uniform, she said. The airline pilot's outfit came to mind. Do you remember what his cab looked like? Meticulously clean. Mm. That sure sounds like Bob. 
when I first saw his apartment, I thought I'd walked into the showroom of a furniture store. Even in jail, his shirt and pants were always ironed and pressed. In Martinsburg, West Virginia, where the truck stop should be in a massive Walmart stretching flat, an endless along a parking lot the size of a lake. Five years ago, the truck stop was demolished along with its restaurant. The only thing they neglected to take down is a website with the words Martinsburg Travel Center of America flashing like a beacon online. The whole thing seemed so uncanny. Everywhere I looked, evidence of these girls was disappearing. I hadn't been able to get a copy of Shanna Holt's police report because I was told there was no official suspect. Lisa Pennell's full statement, it turned out, had been destroyed for file space. Now the whole Martinsburg truck stop had been swallowed by a Walmart supercenter. I knew from talking to the Martinsburg police that the truck stop had been under the jurisdiction of the Berkeley County Sheriff. I called the office. A chipper recorded voice told me to press one for TAs, press two for guns, all other callers stay on the line. I finally spoke to a woman and asked if they had a homicide record for a girl who may have been found in the Martinsburg truck stop during the summer of 1985. We don't have any records, she told me. I thought she meant digitized. I can come down, I said. We don't have any records. In the 1990s, the Berkeley County Sheriff's Department's computer crashed and burned. The paper records had been destroyed for file space, and so nothing from the 1980s remained. I asked to speak to any senior officer who might have been there at the time. She told me there was only one, and he had gone fishing. I spent a week on the road in Appalachia, visiting truck stops, interviewing the older truckers and waitresses. At first, I would ask about the girl in the dumpster, but no one had heard of her. I asked if there had ever been any woman found in truck stops. Wherever I went, I was told nothing like that ever happened, which was remarkable given the numbers of bodies the FBI had tracked over the past 30 years. The newspapers were equally silent. It seems our profound fascination with serial killers is matched by an equally profound lack of interest in their victims. Mm. Mm. I like that sentence. Yeah, that's... Cold hard Mm. truth. Yeah. One library archivist explained that I was looking for the kind of news nobody wanted to read. The girl, he said, wasn't one of our own. She was a drifter. I never heard the word drifter used in earnest. It touched a nerve I didn't know I had. I had been a drifter. If what he said was true, the trail I was on had disappeared into a field. Out of desperation, I made one last attempt and swung by a smaller truck stop in Hancock, Maryland. I spoke to a woman who had worked there a long time and told her about the dead hitchhiker while she fingered the gold cross on her neck and listened. Had she ever heard about it, I asked. She shook her head. Then her eyes clouded some. Wait a minute. There was that one girl. She was a prostitute. They found her near a dumpster behind the restaurant at the Gateway Travel Plaza in Breezewood. She had a stocking down her throat, I think. That was way back in the early 70s, though. It wasn't the early 70s. It was 1987, and the woman killed was 19-year-old LaMonica Cole. I found her in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette later that night. 
she had been strangled at Breezewood. Another prostitute had been grabbed there as well in 2006, but was found farther down the road with her throat slit. Neither of these women were the one I was looking for, but a sentence in the article caught my attention. It said there had been a string of prostitute murders in truck stops in the area beginning in June of 1985, which was right on the edge of my time frame. The next morning, I drove to the Gateway Travel Plaza in Breezewood, Pennsylvania. I thought that maybe in a truck stop where known murders had occurred, people would be more forthcoming. Maybe they would remember something that others hadn't. I parked in front of the Family Travel Plaza, then walked back past a sign that read, Trucks Only. The store for professional drivers was clean and quiet. I asked around until I found someone who had been there in 1985. It was a woman, probably in her mid-fifties. She came over and gave me an open smile. I asked her the same questions I was asking everybody. Did you ever hear about a hitchhiker in a dumpster? No, she said. Did you ever hear of anything like that at all, in other times, any other bodies of women found along the stretch of I-70? I was in the one place where I knew for certain women had been found, one less than a hundred yards away from where she was standing. No, she said, I never heard of anything like that anywhere. Listening to her, it occurred to me that this investigation of mine wasn't a detective novel. It was a ghost story. The prisms of Virginia Walters, Shanna Holtz, and Lisa Pennell refracted into a set of icons, one in the back seat of a car laughing as she leaned on the headrest, one with the shorn red-gold hair and an expression of resilience, one slightly crazy and ready to fight, each casting her own light each a hologram of girlhood. Recently, the New Jersey State Supreme Court handed down a statement on memory, describing it as complex and often unreliable. The ruling went on to question the admissibility of eyewitness testimony. Quote, human memory is not like a video recording, they said, and they're right. It's more like a set of still photos. I remember coming down through the Blue Ridge Mountains in a truck with its brakes on fire and dropping over Chester Gap in the middle of the night when it was still hot and the air was loud with the chirping of bugs. I remember sitting in the drizzle in a truck while a crime scene tape was strung around the dumpster. I remember driving around Ohio, howling along with Bruce Springsteen and buzzed out of my brain on Diet Cokes, and being sad that the ride ended because it was a safe one and I had almost been able to be myself for a second, but that second had passed. I remember a fuel island in the blue morning light and a driver with a white shirt that stood out like a flag and taking the turn back east, then south, and a gray day just before a storm so pressurized my ears hurt. And I remember being in the woods off I-95. I only ran about a hundred yards before I turned and hid because I didn't know if I was being chased and needed to see. I crouched on netted twigs and breathed into my shirt to muffle the sound. The woods were blue in the gray light, which was either dusk or a storm coming. At the center of everything was my own breath. The birds went silent and I didn't know what it meant. I watched the truck idle on the side of the road until it finally pulled off. 
One snowy night several months later, I was hitchhiking through Amherst, Massachusetts, and a car full of students from Hampshire College picked me up and let me stay with them. In the morning, they talked me into applying to the college. I was accepted, and that provided a thin strip of pride on which to stand while I made contact with my family. My mother was happy to pay for school. Being 16 and in college is an easier thing to talk about. It was a solution that worked for both of us and looked like redemption, but didn't last. The dissonance between my emotional world and the one around me was still too great, and I soon left again, but in a more sanctioned way. I hitchhiked in Europe and settled in Vienna for a few years. I lived among artists in the Lower East Side squats. These are narratives we know. Unlike those of other young women on the road, my story was now recognizable. When I got home from West Virginia, a letter from Rhodes was waiting. It said he would see me if I promised never to say that I had seen him or what had passed between us. It was just the kind of promise a sexual predator or child molester would try to extract. He also wanted $500. I wrote him back and told him that journalistic standards wouldn't allow me to pay for interviews. I expected that to be the end of it, but I got another letter. Young was right. Rhodes liked to think of himself as an expert, and now Rhodes suggested he be paid as one. But an expert in what, I thought? Killing? At the bottom of the yellow legal paper, scrawled in all caps, he wrote, It wasn't me! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. I looked at the letter. He may be right, but certainly not because he's innocent. I imagined for a moment flying to Illinois. I go through the paperwork, get fingerprinted, and led through a channel of airlock doors into a room with him. He's there with his neatly pressed shirt and colossal arrogance. We do the interview, but I don't take notes. It doesn't matter what he says. After all, it's just going to be his word against mine. And who's going to believe him? That's where my fantasy ends, in a game of who's credible now. The same week that I got the letter from Rhodes, the senior officer from the Berkeley County Sheriff's Department who had been fishing returned. He said that no girls had ever been found in a dumpster at the Martinsburg, West Virginia truck stop, and I had no reason not to believe him. One story Deborah Davis told me still haunts me. She was on a trip with her husband, Bob, the last she ever took in his truck. They were heading west on I-10 and stopped somewhere in Arizona at a busy truck stop. By the restaurant door was a young woman with a baby trying to get a ride. Hmm. Deborah said she looked about 18 or 19 and desperate. Deborah wanted to give her money or do something. Her own sister had been on the street and she was overwhelmed by the woman at the door and didn't want to just walk away. Rhodes saw what Deborah was looking at. He came around behind her and grabbed her shoulders. He turned her slowly towards the girl and pointed. You see that, Debbie? He whispered in her ear. She's one of the invisible people. That was the end. That's it? That was the end. Wow. She's one of the invisible people. 
that is utterly horrifying and I'd feel unwell. We should note that right below the conclusion of this article, our author, Vanessa Veselka, is noted as being not only the author of this amazing article, but is the author of a book called Zazen, parentheses, Red Lemonade, which actually won the 2012 PEN backslash, I think that's what it says, PEN backslash Bingham Prize for fiction. So that's pretty awesome. I'm definitely going to check that out. But yeah, there you have it, guys. I mean, I just popped over to Wikipedia just to like get a cliff note on this piece of Mm -hmm. shit. Yeah. And it says he confirmed to have tortured and killed at least two couples in Illinois (gasps) and Texas in 89 and 90 and additionally suspected of torturing, raping, and killing more than 50 women between 75 and 90. What? And when he was caught, he claimed to have engaged in these activities for 15 years. That does not surprise me in the slightest. Because what was Mm -hmm. the number that they said of young women and girls that went missing in this time frame? It was like 900. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that as our author is going around to these towns where he was targeting victims that people who would have been around her age in this time were like you know nothing like that ever happened around here girl this fucker's like 45 minutes from us oh no <laughs> ew you mean where he is in prison yeah oh fuck um that's wow I really enjoyed this article and I, yes. I believe we touched on this before but because of the point of view it was from Mm, yeah i truly enjoyed and i like how it wasn't confirmed like Mm -hmm. i mean i like my confirmation i like knowing ends of things but it wasn't confirmed if Mm -hmm. he was her truck stop yeah person or not so we don't know if she was a potential victim Mm, yeah but regardless she shone light on his actual victims Mm -hmm. and it's terrifying that even even if she was not a potential Rhodes victim Mm -hmm. that she was a potential victim of another person somebody that was doing the exact same type of stuff so it's just because you know that he physically could not have done that to 900 women like nobody I don't think that would have been physically logistically possible so there had to be multiple so even if it wasn't him, that's that's almost even more terrifying. I mean, just think of the access mm-hmm. that that job gives you. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. And that they existed. If you were already somebody that was, as we like to say, dark-sided, if somebody is already dark-sided and they're doing a job 
like that Mm -hmm. where they are living an incredibly isolated existence in an echo chamber of creepiness that radio the prostitutes the everywhere all the time access to sadistic pornography then what is the isolation the you know the substance abuse the sleep deprivation like all of those things the access to vulnerable women that were not known to the communities they were passing through it's just a perfect storm for it's terrifying disaster yeah utterly terrifying uh, and it's it's bullshit to say that those women were invisible when they were just surviving yeah yeah and they were not invisible to the people that loved them and even if they did not have people at home that loved them even if they were their only you know that they only had themselves they should not have been invisible to law enforcement to the communities that that's i just can't understand the thought process of looking down on somebody for an occupation yeah or just like circumstances yeah the dismissal of somebody's life because they're doing a job that is we it's like we can acknowledge that certain jobs Mm -hmm. are more high risk because you are more likely to come in contact with people that have that bend towards evil that in no way means that your life is any less valuable Mm -hmm. that you are any less deserving of justice that you are any more or less like it doesn't it doesn't matter even just it doesn't matter the amount of the teenagers in this story the the children the children yes yes these are not like so blessed to have year parents old plus adults yeah loved me mm-hmm. it was tough love at times yeah but i had a roof over my head i had mm-hmm. food in my stomach mm-hmm. i had opportunities you might and have there are some children that don't have that and that's and all they have left to do is survive yeah yeah you might have started to throw the suitcase together to run away but it was always a like wait bitch i had an escape route yes but (laughs) but that was always you got to a point where you were like uh actually no because i know at the end of the day but what's best and safest Mm -hmm. to be at home but to be in a place where actually you have better chances leaving and being on your own i cannot imagine and that's scary that existence would be uh, i we as a society have so much work to do and this was not i mean all of this still actively happens Mm -hmm. it was just within the last couple of years that we had a young woman found who had been murdered 
very close, I mean, in our county. And it was believed that she had been murdered at the hands of a long haul trucker and discarded on the side of the road. So this has not stopped. Maybe it's a little bit more difficult for people to do this now with all the cameras and everything we have, you know, I, Fuck that. I Half pray the cameras to God, don't even work. I, that's true. I just need to believe that it's happening less, but the fact that it's happening at all is obviously not okay. It's just horrifying, horrifying. So I'm incredibly grateful that this author told her story and this is a case that I don't want to look into further, but I absolutely will be now because I cannot help myself. I need to find that Laughing Death Society or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what was that? And what was that book? That game oh, book? Fuck. What in the hell? Ugh. That was nasty. Screw morbid curiosity because I know I'm going to be Googling that yeah. later. No. Oh. No, 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 no. But if you guys think this one was a mind fuck, um... <laughs> Buckle in, sit back. Buckle in for the... Put some marshmallow on those skewers. We're going to make some s'mores at the campfire. Yeah. And tell you the story (laughs) that Jen has graciously bestowed upon herself (laughs) to do the research for. (laughs) Bless her. Send some prayers. Some money. Thank you. Of Israel Keys. Yeah. Who I want to say... That those people had no business naming their child Israel. I do not believe they were Jewish. Somebody's probably going to come at me being like they were, but I don't think they were. He gives me more Malachi from Children of the Corn vibes. Oh, yeah. Um, Just gives me nope vibes. But that is going to be a perfect example of somebody who was very much a killer in plain sight, somebody that had their mode of operations and their signatures, somebody who is incredibly arrogant that fancied themselves a teacher of their methods when they became, you know, under the, uh, once they were arrested and being interviewed by law enforcement and somebody that just had a complete and utter terrifying disregard for human life and made his air quotes craft of killing a game to him. And that was his ultimate thrill and kind of his purpose for existing was chasing the high of the game that he played in finding victims and carrying out murders. So... That one's going to be a uh, a doozy. Don't recommend listening if you're in any way freaked out by that kind of stuff. But if you're already here, then... <laughs> well, it is We're glad what it you're is. here. Yes. And in the meantime, guys, we just want to shout out Stephen Sean of the podcast Mostly Horror, which is part of the Morbid Podcast Network. We actually had an awesome, awesome opportunity to join Mostly Horror for an episode of their show and talk about true crime alongside the horror genre and 
the crossover that happens there, how can we can be responsible consumers of true crime content and horror content. And we played a fun game who would play us in the event of our untimely demise <laughs> in a movie about our life. We talked aliens. We talked celebrities. We talked about all kinds of stuff. And they were absolutely wonderful and lovely and it was a great time. It was a good time. And that was a big deal for us as a little tiny baby podcast to get to be on a show that is part of the Morbid Podcast Network. So that was pretty awesome. We'll absolutely be having Mostly Horror Steve and Sean come on our show. So be sure to go give them a like and mm -hmm. follow. Yep. Check out that episode and some of their other awesome conversations that they had yeah, very intriguing. Oh, yeah. I think most recently they interviewed the director of Night Swim, and that's number one at the box office right now. So I personally will not be watching Night Swim. because yeah, that's a Wikipedia read for me. Yeah, that's going to be a, if I watch that, I'll never get in a pool again. But I did watch their conversation with the director, <laughs> and it was fascinating. And apparently it was filmed in Michelle Branch's backyard. So that's pretty awesome. Cool. Yeah. Um, please make sure to like and review us, guys. Mm -hmm. That helps us out a lot and makes us feel good. Yes. Good reviews. Spread the kindness <laughs> and love. Yes. Give us a follow on Instagram at Camping is Canceled. And you can also find us on TikTok at Camping is Canceled. I'm starting to be better about also posting our Instagram things on TikTok. Mm. TikTok kind of freaks me out and overwhelms me. I know I'm showing my age by saying that. But okay. but I'm trying. We're trying to. I mean, we're calling like 18 year olds babies. Mm, yeah, so. because they are. They are. They totally. I'm are. still a baby. Love you, 18 year olds. You're still a baby, Jen. <laughs> I am. We're young. Yes, I can. I feel like a baby and probably act like a baby more than I should a lot of times. But that's okay. But mm. I mean, same. Yes. Yes. Keeps you young at heart. <laughs> exactly. I don't think there's anything else beyond that. Nope. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> Catch you back next week. Bye. Bye.